This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cutmore. We welcome Dave Green as we sometimes welcome Dave Green to the program. How are you, Dave? Every now and again, Bob, we sit in with you. Do appreciate it. Well, I appreciate having you here because I want to tell a couple of stories about local history uh, taken from my column, Focus on History. Uh, We're first going to hear about a war hero who was a textile teacher and Our second story will have to do with my grandmother, who fed soldiers guarding the Erie Canal in World War I. But our first tale uh, takes us through World War II and beyond. It's currently one of my my most favorite stories. I wrote it some time back for for the newspaper. If I ever do another book, Dave, and that's not a promise. All right, but, but you, ever, never, you never know. If I ever do another book, I do want to include this story. It isn't, you know, in a sense, I mean, there are dramatic things that happen in, in it, but, you know, it's not, you know, how shall I say, world-shattering, but it's, it's a, a man's life, and I, I, I just thought it was quite interesting. The man named William Fenhan, generally called Bill, Bill Fenhan, um, he taught Amsterdam Junior High School boys, the skills used in carpet making and other textile trades. That's when I knew him. I was was one of his students uh, back in the late 50s, early 60s, perhaps it was, uh, when he he was teaching. His daughter, Patricia Fenhan Dunn, sometimes visited her father at the end of the school day. While everyone was busy cleaning up the shop, she wrote, He'd entertain everybody with war stories. He had a great way of telling a story, using humor to entertain everyone while they worked. Uh, Patricia continues, My dad was wounded during the war, and he was disabled. But you would never know it, I would add. I didn't know it, unless he told you. He became a teacher when his injuries prevented him from signing on with St. Louis to play baseball. Bill Fenhan was born in Mannheim, Germany, 1924. When he was a little boy, he and his family came to America. They settled in Columbia County in New York State, upstate New York, and he was a standout as a baseball pitcher at Hillsdale High School in Columbia County. But World War II was on, so when he graduated from high school in 1943, He enlisted in the U.S. Army and became a platoon sergeant in the 5th Ranger Battalion of the 35th Infantry Division. You have a personal connection to this as as well, Dave, in that your father was in the invasion of Normandy. Is that correct? Uh, He was part of it, 28th Infantry Division. Was he really? What was his uh, job? I mean, what was he? Was he a He was just, uh, he just slugged it out. He was just an infantryman. Yeah. Well, I think that's basically what um, Bill Fenhan was, except I, th- I get the impression, maybe you would know more from your military experience, I think the Rangers are, are kind of, you know, I don't know, they seek more dangerous assignments or something. They go, like they go first. They go first. All right. Well, anyway, he was in the Normandy invasion in 1944. Years ago, he told the recorder, quote, the most harrowing part was getting to the top of the first hill which sounds like it, mu- it must be getting to the top of that first hill. And the only um, experience I've had with this is watching the movie The Longest Day or uh, the movie that was uh, recently done with 
uh, Tom Hanks that for some reason has left my my head. Saving Private Ryan. Yes, yeah, Saving Pri- Private Ryan. Well, Bill Fenhan's unit's assignment was to get to the top of the hill and link up with another unit about a half mile off the beach. It's the only thing he had to ever do in his life, yes. if you think about it. Yeah. It, it, and it, he said it took a day to do that. It took a day to do that. A day to survive. Yeah. And he wasn't wounded there, but he was wounded three times in, uh, in World War II, and he earned two Purple Hearts, plus the Bronze Star and the Silver Star. Because he was of German origin, he was fluent in German. He could speak German. So he was very valuable to the Rangers because he could interrogate German soldiers and German civilians. He was wounded once while interrogating a German civilian. Another American soldier heard the two of them speaking German, assumed they were both German and and bad, and opened fire, uh, injuring uh, both of them. But Bill Fenhan's worst injuries were sustained when his legs were broken and his nerve fibers were severed by machine gun fire when his uh, group of rangers made it to Germany. He was hospitalized for 16 months. And I'm not positive, but I think that was the end of the war for him as, as such, because I think the war I think so. was over by the time he was released from the hospital. But here's what impressed me. I mean, one of the many things that impressed me about Bill Fenhan and all the things he did. Um, he was still eager to be a baseball player and was able to secure uh, positions with minor league teams after the war. He played with the Quebec Alouettes and with the Peekskill New York Highlanders. In fact, he's written up on a website called Baseball in Wartime, and I credit a man named Gary Bedingfield for this information. Uh, Bedingfield found that Bill Fenhan, when he was playing baseball, and he loved to play baseball, he continued to play baseball through much of his life, but his injuries made it difficult to pitch a full game. Because his you know, legs were, were shot up so badly, he couldn't you know, stand on the mound you know, for, a full, for a full game. So ultimately, his uh, plan to become a Major League Baseball player with the St. Louis Cardinals uh, was put on the back burner, as his daughter had said. Then Bill Fenhan married a woman named Teresa Gagne of Dalton, Massachusetts, 1950. There's one of several holes in the story. You think I would have filled it by now, Dave. I've had the time and I have the contact. I'm not quite sure how the two of them met. Uh, Dalton is a little bit away from uh, Columbia County, but not you know that not that far. Uh, but uh, on a trip to Cape Cod, the way you used to do, Bob. That's right. So anyway, he married Teresa Gagne in 1950, and then uh, using the GI Bill, he went to college. He went to SUNY Oswego. He played collegiate baseball while he was at Oswego, and he earned his bachelor's degree. In 1954, and I I don't think there was anything special or any special reason for it, but in 1954, he came to Amsterdam, Amsterdam, New York, the town, city I frequently write about. And I think it was just that, you know, there was a job there. And he was appointed textile instructor at Amsterdam's Theodore Roosevelt 
Junior High School. Big Junior High School, then on Guy Park Avenue, the school uh, closed a couple of decades after that. But back then, again, it was a big, you know, relatively speaking, a big school. The school had 950 students. And all the boys took various shop classes. I mean, it wasn't just the people who were destined to study that or do that, but everybody had to take shop classes. So Bill Fenhan really worked hard to, to make the textile course interesting to the boys. And they were all, you know, again, girls did not take this course. For example, he secured a sock-making machine for his students, according to a 1957 recorder story. As far as I know, they never made socks in Amsterdam, but, you know, they made them somewhere, and this was a class in textiles. The carpet company, or one of them anyway, in Amsterdam, Ohasco, donated scrap chenille, which is a kind of fabric used for making rugs so that uh, Fenhan could use it in class, and there were various looms there. And the boys were, were taught designing, stenciling, and sewing. Now, a little personal aside, Dave, I took this course. You did? Yes. and You were not uh, destined to become a sock maker. Right? No, I, I wasn't. Uh, although my father was a carpet weaver. A couple of kind of personal tales about Bill Fenhan and, and me. I remember that my dad, when they'd have junior high teacher night, he loved coming down to see Bill Fenhan because Bill Fenhan had some idea of carpets. You know, actually, Bill Fenhan never, as far as I know, worked in the carpet field, but he, he had taught boys how to, you know, the basics, basics of it. So my father enjoyed going there. And I basically enjoyed his class. Um, one thing he used to do, and I, I didn't take part in this, he was he's really kind of this man's man sort of guy. And let's face it, Dave, perhaps I am not, you know, more on the... Maybe, s- maybe not. More on the sissy end of the <laughs> spectrum. But um, one thing that a lot of the boys remember, who are now men, and, and since my, when my story ran in the paper and was posted on Facebook by a, a woman who uh, named uh, uh, Chris Eggleston out in... Uh, Minden, who posts a lot of my stories, he's got a lot of response from people and boys who took the class, and I don't. They all remembered the boxing matches. He apparently, <laughs> oh, this is not you, Bob. No, apparently he would sometimes, <laughs> you know, during the day, slow day, he'd say, okay, and he'd have these boxing matches, and they'd push the sock making and the, and the sewing machines and the um, other paraphernalia. As you headed for the door. <laughs> right. Or hid under the a loom or yeah. something. <laughs> so he'd have these boxing matches. So again, I don't remember that, but he he, he did that. You blocked it out of your mind I is prob- what you've done. I, I probably have. But you, you took, I remember taking sewing and weaving. My mother was a sewing teacher. and Knowledge making sense. Yeah. For whatever reason, I had kind of, you know, done some things for her. So I did pretty well in sewing, did okay. But then we came to weaving, and now I'm going to throw under the bus one of my best friends, a man I grew up with named Tommy Chrisman. You got partners when you finally got to do weaving. And so Tommy Chrisman and I were partners on a loom, and we started to thread the loom, you know, where you have to put the yarn through these little holes and tie it in one end and another and get the yarn in the shuttle and then... I, I think they were manual looms, you know. You, you just move the shuttle, and then you uh, turned a lever. You didn't and, want to get too close yeah. to those either. Well, Tommy and I worked on this and worked on this, and it became a royal fiasco. 
It, we just couldn't do it. And I don't exactly remember what was the outcome, but I think at some point Bill Fenhan just said, why don't you guys move on to something else? Really? Uh, Bob, uh, I suggest radio. Yeah. But here's the irony of that story. Both my father and Tommy Chrisman's father were carpet weavers. <laughs> they did this for a living. <laughs> well, you obviously decided at age seven, <laughs> yeah. not for me. Yeah. Well, no, it was seventh grade or eighth grade, so I was older than yeah. age seven. Well, anyway, so Bill Fenhan is, you know, after being born in Germany, raised in Columbia County, serving uh, honorably with the U- U.S. Army Rangers in World War II, badly wounded, goes to college. He's now teaching in Amsterdam. 1960, he becomes president of the Teachers' Union. 61, I find in the newspaper accounts that he was pitching for the Amsterdam Textiles in the local Twilight League. He was also an excellent bowler, rolling a sizzling 670 triple one night in 1961. He continued to get uh, you know, newspaper covers from time to time. A, a German-speaking cousin of his from Dusseldorf, Germany, Helmut Hessmann, once visited the Fenhans at their home on Guy Park Avenue. Uh, Teresa and Bill by then were raising six children, four girls and two boys. The recorder wrote that Fenhan students were becoming well-prepared for work in a city which has been known for years as the Carpet City. Unfortunately, that was changing. The rug industry was moving out. Fenhan left Amsterdam Junior High after 14 years for industrial arts jobs in other school districts. I thought it may, it had to do at least partly, and that may be true, with the decline of the carpet industry. There just was no need for this course anymore or the way it was structured in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. But since my piece appeared in print, and I just you know have this now from testimony, but I haven't put it in print, but his daughter has uh, told me, you know, a subsequent email, she said, well, I don't remember a lot about it, but my father had some sort of argument with some official in the, in the school uh, or some person in the school. And in, in a fit of pique, he quit. He quit. She says, I remember him sitting with him. We went out to dinner that night. And he said, I can't believe it. I quit. I, what am I going to do? Well, it didn't take long. Uh, by the next year, again, according to the newspaper record, um, he is working in, at Shelmont High School in uh, Rotterdam. And then that must have been kind of like a short-term bridge because then he secured an industrial arts teaching job in St. Johnsville where he taught for 15 years. He didn't, uh, he didn't teach textiles up there. And again, maybe that was you know, becoming passe. But he specifically taught woodworking. And his uh, daughter Patricia tells me that she still has a hope chest that he had uh, made for her you know, when uh, when she was was getting married, shop shop teachers are very creative people. Yes, I, I would say, and he 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 was, and in 1975, one other uh, point about Bill Fenhan, he was named baseball coach at St. Johnsville. I believe they always continued to live in Amsterdam. Eventually, he retired. He visited Normandy on the 50th anniversary of the invasion in 1994. I don't, 
did your father ever go back to Normandy? Uh, no, he never did. No. Uh, Fenhan told the Stars and Stripes newspaper he couldn't find the exact spot where he landed, but he added, quote, in your mind you visualize everything you did before you hit the beach. I, can, I, I can't imagine that he was able to create anything in his mind. You know, you'd be, you'd be a, there'd be a void in there yep. with, with trying to make the first hill on the first day. <laughs> your mind may block that out. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah, but anyway. Quite, he, a, quite a story. Yes, and uh, so he went to Normandy in 1994. Three years later, at age 73, he uh, died following a long illness. His wife, Teresa, survived him and lived until 2009, and they're both buried at Pine Grove Cemetery in uh, Tribes Hill, just outside of Amsterdam. After, after you, t- you tell that story, Bob, a- after someone uh, lands on the D-Day invasion, the rest of his life, the rest of your life s- s- must seem a bit trivial. It could be, but he certainly lived it. You know, he didn't, Yeah, yeah, he turned it all around. Yeah, he didn't, uh, you know, rest on his laurels or you know, drown in uh, self-pity and, and so forth, it, it appears. Uh, so really kind of... Not a, no, certainly after being able to uh, achieve health after his legs being so badly hurt. That's right. And, can you know, I think, you know, I get a sense of a man who was, you know, constantly pushing himself, you know, maybe not owning up to others that he was... As, well, as we, as we get older, Bob, that's exactly what needs to be done. Exactly. Well... That is the story of Bill Fenhan. It's my uh, focus on history. If somebody wants to see the story, uh, if you go to mohawkvalleyweb.com and search for Fenhan, F-E-N-N-H-A-H-N, in my uh, columns, you should come up with it. We have about uh, 10 minutes left, I do believe, Dave. 11 minutes, Bob. 11 minutes left. So I think we have uh, time to do this uh, next story, which is also about war. But it has to do with my family, with my, my grandmother, and it has to do with uh, World War One as opposed to World War Two. Uh, this is a, seems as though we're always dealing with a war here somewhere. Well, we are in the, these two episodes yes. today. Uh, this was a focus on history column, uh, which uh, ran this summer, called "Feeding the Soldiers Who Guarded Lock 13." Margaret Cook fed soldiers who got, guarded Lock 13 on the Mohawk River Barge Canal against sabotage in World War I. Margaret was my grandmother. She lived south of the waterway in Randall, along what is today's Route 5S. The soldiers were stationed north of the river in Yosts, which is a little hamlet across the river. This summer, the state of New York opened a rest stop on the westbound side of the thruway in Randall, right next to Lock 13. They have a store there, the Taste of New York store, operated by Liberty Enterprises of Montgomery County, offers goods from the Mohawk Valley and information on historic sites. And I'm rather proud to relate, Dave, they also sell copies of my books there. I've heard that. (laughs) Yes, stories from the Mohawk Valley, hidden history of the Mohawk Valley, and lost Mohawk Valley. And it has become... The one retail establishment that sells more of my books than any other, and I really think I credit my publisher for this, because it's all of my books bear the words Mohawk Valley, and the market here at this this rest stop are 
travelers passing through. So if they look for a, some sort of memento of the Mohawk Valley, well, there's my book. And you can't get any deeper into the Mohawk Valley. There you go. But I, and when we were up there, I was telling some of the people who were at the ribbon cutting about this, including Brian Stratton, who's the head of the State Canal Commission. He came up uh, for this about the, my grandmother's story, and he affirmed it. You know, it's not too well known, or wasn't you know maybe that big a deal, or, or I guess well it was then, but when maybe maybe even slightly before America entered World War One, they started guarding the Barge Canal against possible German sabotage. Um, I think it maybe served two functions. It was, you know, important to do that. You know, that was like, you know, the airports of today or the railroads and, and so forth. In those days, a lot of goods moved through the canal. But the other thing was, I think it uh, became a place for soldiers who had just been trained to get assignments before they were shipped over to Europe. Yeah, making more sense. Yeah. Now, my grandmother, her story uh, in particular, she was born in the Catskill Mountains. Her name was Margaret Wright at birth. She was born in the hamlet of Chichester in 1873. She was married twice. Her first marriage to Brooklyn carpenter John Haz ended in divorce, but they had one son, Harry Haz. In 1909, and I don't know exactly how this happened geographically, my grandmother from Chichester in the Catskills married a man named Yates Cook, who was 20 years older, and my grandmother moved to Randall, where he lived, and he managed the local store. Now, Yates Cook was from a fairly prominent family in Montgomery County. At least his brother was. His brother was a man named Willett Cook, who had founded the Canajahari Courier newspaper. But as far as my know, I know, my, un- my grandfather, Yates Cook, ran the store. I don't, even, I don't even know if he owned the store, but he ran the store. Yates Cook had been married before as well, and her, his first wife, also named Margaret, had died the year before uh, Yates married my grandmother when his first wife was hit by a freight train near the passenger station in Fultonville as she crossed the tracks on the West Shoreline. She and Yates had no children. She'd gone to Fultonville. I mean, that's how people traveled those days. They didn't go by horse and wagon. Uh, She went to Fultonville to attend a surprise party for her sister. But then Yates and my grandmother, another Margaret, married in uh, 1909 and had three children. Uh, The oldest, my Aunt Jane, then my Uncle Yates Jr., and my mother, Julia. My grandfather died in 1915 from a ruptured blood vessel as he hitched up a horse and wagon for a trip to Fonda, leaving my grandmother, a single mother, with three small children. The outbreak of the war and the need to feed the soldiers guarding the lock made it feasible, you know, I think financially, for my grandmother to remain in Randall during the war. And when she died, she left behind a photo album which had been made by one of the soldiers. My grandmother Margaret was a cook by name. That was her name, Margaret Cook. And also, she would say, a cook by nature. She loved to cook. And the photo captions all use that word to describe her. Cook and the midnight mechanic. Cook and the loafer. And the roughneck and the cook. 
And these were all pictures of some of the soldiers uh, that she was taking care of at uh, Lock 13. My mother even has a photo in the book, and her photo caption, she was a little girl at the time, is Julia, the Queen of Randall. And I have an idea that the soldiers kind of doted upon her. And kind of um, cementing the story, if you will, as to what my grandmother did, there was an article quoting a soldier about my grandmother in a, a newspaper that came out of uh, Utica. Uh, his name, uh, the name of the soldier was William Allen, Private William Allen, a member of Company C, 2nd Regiment, New York Infantry. Uh, the uh, Utica paper wrote, Private Allen writes that Mrs. Cook is a widow with three small children. She's been cook for the boys at Yost's since the war began, and 14 of her boys have gone on to France. Seven more are in training camps. She has mothered them all, and the boys look to her for smiles and other necessities as well as for their meals. Mrs. Cook has seven Liberty Bonds and is buying war stamps. She asks for her change in thrift stamps, of which she has several books. The boys in France who have boarded with her she does not forget but sends them cigarettes or money to buy them. She's now sending Christmas gifts. Her constant thought is to keep the boys happy and content with Army life. Private Allen wishes there were more who would buy bonds and help the government to bring the boys back to America. Again, that uh, from the uh, article in the Utica Saturday Globe. People, people don't... Uh... I'm not sure the opportunity is the word I want, Bob, but people don't have the opportunity to do these things anymore, it seems. Probably. Yeah, I can't imagine that, you know, that the U.S. Army today, you know, if they had a right. small contingent of soldiers, would would look around for, uh, you know. For a boarding house. Yeah, for a boarding house. And, and, that, and that eventually, you know, with her husband, you know, her second husband now deceased, that became my grandmother's career, if you will, because— when the war ended in 1918, Margaret Cook and her three children moved to Amsterdam, where she ran a boarding house on Forbes Street in the East End, which, you know, was a more, you know, a better place to run a boarding house. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There were a lot of factories and a lot of men working there that, um, you know, were single or whatever and wanted to get their three squares or two squares or or whatever they got. So. Today, today, what are we talking about? Airbnb or something? <laughs> something like something that. Something like that. Something like that. But anyway, um, my my grandma ran the, the boarding house in Amsterdam, and there are other stories associated with that. Um, I, I do remember my grandfather on my father's side, after my, uh, grand, uh, after my mother and my father started courting, uh, my grandfather was quite a tippler, you know? I don't know. You know, can't imagine. He you, he enjoyed his drink, and he'd hang I, out. I was going to ask you for an explanation. Yeah, he he hung out at the bar with some guy. I think his name was Archie Fife, <laughs> and he was Archie was one of the uh, boarders up to, to my grandmother's boarding house, and he was ter terrible about playing the bill. And my grandfather, with his English accent, oh Archie, hang up there and pay Mrs. Cook. You owe her a lot of money. 
<laughs> Cook needs the money, you know. Why does this play so well, Bob? I mean, if, if you walk into a bar, you are most likely going to run into an Archie. <laughs> it just seems to work out. Archie at the bar. Because you hired me as your timekeeper, That's right. I'm going to say to you, you have 60 seconds. All right. Well, let me just say that in later years, Margaret Cook lived with us when I was young. She died in 1953 at age 80. And she and her husband, Yates, are buried at Maple Avenue Cemetery, which is near Fultonville. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast. I thank uh, Dave Green for joining us today. Enjoyed your stories, Bob. Thank you. And you can find these stories on MohawkValleyWeb.com. There's a search feature so you can search for some of the names and come up with a story. I'm Bob Cudmore.